Sweet. Have you got your Bibles? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to step away this morning from our series in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're participating with uh, churches all across Canada, across the U.S., and actually it's extended out internationally this year, which is exciting. I, I don't know how many churches. Last year it was more than 3,000. So uh, kind of fun to think that we're partnering with brothers and sisters around the world to uh, teach on biblical sexuality this morning. And so I wanted to take you to Matthew chapter 19 in your Bibles, and I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. And we're going to read Matthew chapter 19 in a minute, but first I want to read from Psalm 96. It's going to be on, your, on the screen. And so stand with me, and you're welcome to read with me if you like. It says this, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then from Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, it says of Jesus, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Lord, this morning, as we gather to consider your word, Jesus, it's our desire to honor you, Lord to point to your glory. And we do pray, God, as we talk about biblical sexuality, your design for men and women and marriage and um, procreation. God, it's our heart and our desire to honor you. And we recognize this morning, even as we come to your word, Lord, that none of us has got this perfect. That's why we need Christ. That's why you've saved us, Lord. But your word gives us the ideal. And it's the thing we're aiming for. And Jesus, we want to honor you. We just declare that this morning in the teaching of the word and in our own individual lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we spend time with you in the word of God, that our hearts would be convicted, that you would bring application to our lives, Lord, that we would better reflect your glory and that your truth would be preached, God, all around the world this morning. Uh, we pray your blessing upon churches participating, God, and that that the teaching of your word would be clear and prophetic to the nations. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, right on. You may be seated. So yeah, this morning we're going to take time, just consider what God's word says about uh, sexuality, marriage, and the nature of men and women. And like I mentioned, we're participating. Last year it was just Canada and the U.S. This year it's spread internationally, which is really exciting to know that churches have joined this initiative that was started in Canada. And, and I think this, there's a, a commitment uh, in the future, the foreseeable future, to do this actually as the, the third uh, Sunday of the new year every year, third Sunday of January. And this church initiative to, to teach on this was, was birthed out of what happened in Canada last year when Bill C-4 was brought into law January 8th. Uh, it's known as the anti-conversion therapy law. And Bill C-4, I would say is this, is the next in the latest slide of a long descent our nation has been on. In the most uh, recent step by a nation that generally rejects God and his moral law, his eternal nature, his divine power, which have been 
clearly seen and perceived since the creation of the world, the scripture says that this is just the next step. And so the tragic thing to me when I consider Bill C4, I'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning talking about it, but I would encourage you to go read it for yourself. But the tragic thing about it is that it was voted into law in Canada without a single dissenting vote. The opposition and the government together unanimously voted into law Bill C-4 that would say about the biblical uh, view on human sexuality, and actually I'm going to quote from the preamble, it will be on the screen, it says this in the preamble, is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender Cisgender gender identity and the gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expression. And the bill goes on, if you're to read it for yourself, goes on to essentially criminalize the preaching uh, and teaching and counseling of the biblical sexual ethic that would call men and women to conform to God's design for human sexuality. And it's shocking when you think about it that not a single member in the House of Commons, 338 members of parliament, not a single person voted to defend the biblical ethic of sexuality. And so that, that just says to us, church, and this is very important that we understand this, that for those who would put their hope in government or in political change to turn a nation around, we want to declare this morning, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, because not a single MP across all party lines voted to defend biblical morality. And we know this, the public school has become the grooming ground for the new gender ideology that does not conform to, conform to obvious um, human biology, but it's, it's based on this fluid sentimentality, human feelings and emotion and seeds of confusion are being planted in the minds of our children and the young people of our nation who are impressionable. And as I was just considering this and praying about it, I'm like, man, you know, Lord, how did we get here? How did we arrive in this place as a nation? Uh, you know, how did we slide this far? And the Lord reminded me, this has not happened overnight. It has not happened overnight. This is just the next step in a long line of choices we have made as a nation in the rejection of God and his moral law. Let's go back for a moment. I mean, it's before my time, but a well-celebrated thing in, in history and in the world is the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. It was a social movement that, that challenged traditional values related to sexuality. It was literally a revolution. Think about that. It was called a sexual revolution. It wasn't a revolution in the overthrowing of a nation's government, but it was a revolution in the sense that the moral order taught by God's word was rejected in the sexual ethic. The sexual revolution increased the acceptance of sex outside of marriage, before marriage, 
It rejected the biblical design of the heterosexual marriage. It was a revolution that increased the acceptance of homosexuality, rejected monogamy, rejected reserving sex for the marriage bed. And once sex could be separated from the biblical design of God-ordained marriage between a man and a woman, the next target in our nation became marriage itself. In the last few decades, Satan has made a strategic attack on the image and the glory of God by his influence in the destruction of the marriage vow and the marriage bed. Marriage long protected by the laws of our nation it was, was in the 1980s, that, well, in the 1980s, the Divorce Act was struck down. And by the early 2000s, what we've seen is this, is that the state government had made itself the authority over the institution of marriage that God had designed. And the state put itself in the place of God and legalized even homosexual unions. And so you have a, a revolution that normalized sexual relationships outside of the God-ordained design of marriage. Next, next, the state set the terms for divorce and made itself the authority to dissolve marriage and then further stretched beyond its God-ordained authority to solemnize homosexual unions. And the result is this, is that we've watched happen in our nation is the crumbling of the family order. It's rarer and rarer and rarer that children are raised in a family with both of their biological parents. Or that those parents are living together as husband and wife before God. The family, which is the foundation of a nation and is, exists from God for the health and structure of a nation, has never been in worse shape in Canada Church. And the state has taken it upon itself to educate children that the family can look like whatever hodgepodge, confused mixture of human relationships that can be assembled is a family. And when you consider this, all of the sudden, all of these things, consider all of them together, all of a sudden it makes sense that the next unnatural step in the de-evolution of our nation would be to escalate the attack on the nature of male and female itself on men and women themselves to try and separate a man or a woman from the biology of their own physical body. To claim that a man can be a woman or to claim that a woman can be a man, or that there are actually more genders than simply male and female. The, the teaching is, you don't have to be restricted by the biology of your body, but you can assign to yourself whatever gender and sexual identity you decide. And there is uh, those in the sexual education, that are working in sex education in the public schools, even here on the Sunshine Coast, that have dropped the word uh, pedophile from their vocabulary and, speaking, and are speaking to our children with the acronym MAP, M-A-P, Minor Attracted Person. We haven't hit the bottom yet. We actually have not bottomed out yet because we have not turned to Christ. And these actions of the state and the education system are not harmless. They're not neutral. They are driven by ideologies that are anti-Christ. They are anti-Jesus. And the state is not a neutral entity. It's not impartial supporting both sides. It has a clearly weighted moral stance in a specific direction. 
The great lie is that the state or that the education system or that secularism is morally neutral. It is not. It is a religious system. They are not religiously neutral. They are religious by nature. You know, Jesus actually said this. He said, he didn't say some things are religious and some things are not. He said this, you are for me or you are against me. There is no soft ground in the middle. And so the secular state is not neutral in advancing its antichrist agendas. And so we, the church, the kingdom of God, proclaim the rule of Christ, the lordship of Jesus and the design of God's kingdom. And this is a clash of kingdoms within our own nation. And as we see the culture transforming, these things are not going to stop unless God has mercy on our nation and brings a revival. Church political change is not the solution. And protests are not the solution. And this morning, the desire of my heart is to proclaim to any and all who would listen that God has an ordained design for human sexuality and gender, and it's laid out in his word. My desire is to be a dissenting voice in culture, one that points people to Christ, a church that's committed to his word because men and women will never understand their value, their worth. They will never understand their identity. They will never know contentment outside of God's ordained design in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And any message contrary to that is a lie. And so the path being promoted in our nation is one that leads to destruction, but there is hope in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I was, uh, I was remembering last year during Pride Month, I saw one you know, social media post uh, where the post said this. You know, they, were, they were giving their support of what was going on in our community, actually, and they said this, we're straight, but we're not narrow. We're straight, but we're not narrow. It was a post, a post that was actually, when you think about it, celebrating the wide path. And I thought, wow, that sounds cute. Not sure if they know that's actually partially a biblical quote. And there's more to it. It's too bad the whole quote wasn't shared because it came from Jesus who said, wide is the path that leads to destruction and straight or narrow is the path that leads to life and few finds it. And we talk about these things this morning because we want people to find the path of life in Jesus Christ. Life is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we talk about these things, we proclaim this, put your hope in Christ. With a word, with a word, Christ Jesus is the power by which God set the heavens and the earth in place. Jesus is the one who brings chaos into order. And today, we boldly proclaim Jesus has made known the path of life. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. There is identity. And his word says there is pleasure forevermore. And so to those in search of fulfillment in life, joy, pleasure, Christ is the answer. His word directs us that there is a biblical sexual ethic that he calls men and women to participate with him in. And the gospel is this. Christ has come. He has borne the punishment for our sin. He died in our place. He was raised to life. Hope and identity are given to those who trust in him. And he commands us to live for him and for his kingdom. 
And those trapped in the search of the search for life, I just want to say to you, maybe you're watching with us online this morning. Maybe you're here today with us and you don't know Jesus and you're scouring in the darkness looking for night, light, looking for meaning, searching for identity. You can look no further because Christ Jesus has come and he saves all who call upon his name. Our hope is in the Lord. And so as followers of Christ, we don't put our hope, church, in political powers or in human institutions. As much as we desire them to be reformed, to come to repentance, to be led by godly men and women, they are not our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. And the Lord has promised, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, an important verse for us this morning. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And so these things happening in our nation that we're observing every day, hearing about every day more and more, this is not the liberation of man. This is not the liberation of people kind. These are attacks on the nature of God and his word. This is an assault on Christ and our nation. And these are attacks on God's creational design. They're meant to hurt God and they are meant to hurt those who are, who, whom God is seeking to redeem from sin and its power. This is a, the scheme of the devil to kill and to steal and to destroy. He's the father of lies. The scripture tells us that when he lies, he speaks his native tongue because he was a liar from the beginning. And today we're calling out these lies. And Satan is making a strategic attack on the image and the glory of God. Because the word of God tells us Man is made in the image of God to, and to live. The purpose of his life is to live for his glory. The purpose of your life is to glorify God. That's to be your identity found in Jesus. The mission of God is his own glory. So we as his people and as a nation need to constantly turn to the word of God to renew our minds, to transform and shape our thinking to form a worldview that is biblical and is honoring to Christ. So let me read again to you from Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. It says this, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The significance of this chapter is interesting because Matthew chapter 19 is actually, in Matthew's gospel, the recounting of the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. From this, this point in on, uh, there's going to be a change of direction. He's going to fix his sights on Jerusalem, and it's ultimately going to lead uh, to the cross. And Matthew chapter 19 brings up several issues of ethics and morality. And for the purpose of our time this morning, I just want us to concentrate on these couple of verses. And so Jesus finds himself in this discussion with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. His answer was born out of a question that was designed to test Jesus. We only read the answer, but Jesus was asked about the legal allowance for divorce. The subject of, divor of divorce at, at that time was was, like on our day, fiercely debated amongst the scholars. And more important than their debates, though, was the desire of those who were speaking with Jesus to destroy him, to kill him. 
And so the question about divorce led to an answer from Jesus that's interesting because Jesus didn't uh, uh, directly answer the question about divorce. Instead, he turned the subject towards the foundational principles of creation, of the creation of man and woman and the institution of marriage. And rather than lower the bar, Jesus raised it. He exalted God's design in men and women and the institution of marriage. He said, marriage and human identity and human sexuality are as old as creation itself. And Jesus said to those who asked him, haven't you read? Haven't you read a statement that says, hey, the answer is kind of obvious. It's kind of obvious. The answer is obvious. When humans become debased by sin, Immorality leads to confusion. And that which is clearly obvious becomes confused. There's nothing, uh, nothing more clear than the ability to identify a man or to identify a woman by their biology. It's obvious. There's nothing clearer in creation. But for a debased mind, the obvious becomes blurred. And to appeal to the conscience and to clear the clouds of confusion, Jesus pointed to the word of God. He said to those who asked him, haven't you read? Haven't you read? You know, all the questions floating around about sexuality and gender, the answer is so obvious, but you have to turn to the word of God to have it and read it. And the question that's rest going through our culture is this. It's, it's about authority. By whose authority are we going to live by? Whose authority? Do we live by the words of men or do we feast on the word of God? And when it comes to human sexuality, I would say this. The plain, simple reading of the word of God is all it takes. In our day, many Christians are aligning themselves and and pledging allegiance to the sexual ethics of the world. They're not doing so based on the plain and simple reading of the word of God, but they are listening to those who cast shadow over the word of God like Satan himself. Did God actually say? They're listening to the counsel of those who love the approval of men rather than the approval or the praises of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus simply turned those who questioned him to the word of God and to the beginning. When you want to understand a story, where do you go? To the beginning. When you're watching a movie, do you start halfway in? No, you go to the beginning because there the introduction lays out the characters, the context, the setting, the story. Try to jump in part way without going to chapter one in a book and what happens? There'll be confusion about the character and their identities and the storyline and the setting. So the question is this, who set the design and purpose for creation? And the answer is God. The word of God says God spoke into the darkness. The first thing to break forth in darkness and to bring light was the word of God. God spoke. God said, and he made the heavens and the earth, and the land, and the sea, and the trees, and the animals. He spoke, and the sea teemed with living creatures. He spoke all things into existence, and he said, it is good. And when he purposed to make man, God said this, let us make man in our image, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, 
and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. Then he took the dust of the earth and he fashioned man and he breathed the breath of life into the dust and that dust became a living creature. And God said, it's very good. And man is unique in all of creation. Man's not some evolved ape, not some outcome of the process of evolution. He is God's design and he is not on par with the rest of creation. Man is unique in all of God's creation as an image bearer. God made a creature similar to himself, but not identical. And so I actually want to clarify something because I think this is important in our culture. In the creation account, you know what God does not call mankind? People kind. He doesn't say that. That's not a biblical word. He calls them man. And we know this, that in creation, God classified, he grouped together the creatures of creation into what the Bible calls kinds. Kinds. Humans and fe- human males and females form a kind in God's design. And God gave to man a name, Ish. And he gave to the woman a name, Isha. And together they formed what God called man, a kind, mankind. And that term is not a slight against women. It is not a patriarchal, power-seeking term to devalue women. It is a biblical classification in creation, mankind. It's a classification into which God organized humans, males and females, and he called them mankind. So when some people say people kind, as our prime minister so famously said, understand this. Here's what he was not doing. He was not defending women. He was attacking God. He was attacking creational order. Not only does saying people kind sound foolish and stupid, but you have to discern the spirit behind it. It was an attack on Christ. And not only was it not a defense of women, it was a promotion that there are more gender identities than the biblical classification of male and female. That there was more, there's more types of human beings that make up the collective human race. That's what he was declaring that day. But the word of God says there is one classification of human beings and there's two types. A male, a man called Ish and a female woman called Isha. And God made us in his image and mankind is unique in all of creation because human males and females are made in the likeness of God. And the scripture says that they are bearers of the image of God, the imago Dei. We bear the image of God, people. This is why God commanded Israel not to make images of God. Because in creation, God had already made an image in all of creation that was to reflect his likeness and his nature. It was called mankind. And that image was corrupted by sin. That is why Christ came. The perfect man came to rescue mankind held captive by sin. Today, when we look at the growing landscape of gender confusion, What we are seeing is the image of God being corrupted by sin. 
And so I asked myself, I wonder this, well, in what way are we image bearers? I want to give you four this morning. The first is this, a mental likeness. It relates to our mind, our intellect, our thinking, our ability to communicate and articulate with others. God has given us an intellect that allows us to reason, that allows us to laugh, that allows us to be creative. We, we are like God in this sense. We've been given an intellect. The second is this, a moral likeness. We have the ability, God has given us the ability to identify and to know right from wrong, to know goodness from evil. We have a moral likeness. We also have a, a social likeness. What we see about God in, in the scripture is this, is that God is social as displayed in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and together they exist in a love relationship, and man is designed to be both social with God and social with one another. He sets a lonely in families, the scripture says. He's designed us to be in relationship. And in the garden, when Adam and Eve were walking in perfection before the Lord, what does the scripture present to us? That they were walking with who? With God. Adam walked with God. There was a social likeness. There's also a spiritual likeness. Man's not just a physical being. He's also a spiritual being. Created to be eternal. Not created to die. Not created to be corrupted by sin. Not created for sin. Not created for evil. Created to live forever in the likeness of the creator in relationship to the creator. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God created man, he gave to Adam and he gave to Eve dominion over the earth. I want to read this to you. Genesis 1, 28. It says this, And God blessed them. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the dominion mandate, they were told a few things. I want to just point them out to you this morning. First, they were told, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. A, a biological end to a male and a female coming together. There would be offspring. And the Lord said, use the earth for your benefit. Subdue it. Be a good steward of creation. Actually, I would even say this, before the creation of Eve, part of Adam's mandate was to name the animals in all of creation. And the scripture specifically tells us that as Adam went through creation, naming all of the animals, he found no suitable helper for himself. So the Lord caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep and he took one of his ribs from his side and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord took that rib as he put Adam into a deep sleep. He took that rib and he formed woman and he brought her, Eve, to the man, Adam. And so Adam was created from the dust and Eve was created from a rib. Man in Hebrew, ish, woman, isha. And then it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made male and God made female. He made man and woman. One man, one woman. 
And it sounds kind of obvious, but sometimes the obvious has to be stated. (laughs) God provided a wife for Adam, a woman whom he could love and live in a relationship of, of, of love with one, a relationship, one that was reciprocal. Love between them could be given and received. She is called in scripture, his helper, which I actually believe in scripture is one of the most beautiful titles ever given to a creature in creation. It's the same title given to the Holy Spirit. She was not taken from his head to rule over him and she was not fashioned from his feet to be subservient to him. She was fashioned to his rib, from his rib to be beside him. And God presented Eve to Adam, man and woman, two individuals, opposite sexes, formed for each other, uh, one the complement to the other. And it's the first human relationship. And I would call it this, the absolute perfect union. It's perfect. It was designed to last forever, as long as life. Perfection and male and female brought together as one reflecting the image and the glory of God. See, when Jesus takes the Pharisees to Genesis chapter 1, he is taking them to the perfect order. It's perfection. Listen, I want to tell you this. I want this to be clear this morning. This is perfection. A man and a woman created in the creation order to be together in marriage. There was an original institution of marriage. It's interesting. There was no room for others. It was one man, one woman. No room for porn. No other creature in all of creation for Adam to lust after. No other creature in all of creation for Eve to lust after. It was not polygamy. It was not same sex. And there was no room for divorce. One man, one woman, perfected in marriage before God. And if God intended for the man to live a solitary life, then he would have created humans one by one and kept them apart. If God had intended for mankind to live in a polygamous relationship, he would have created more than one woman. If God had intended mankind to live in a homosexual lifestyle, then he would have made two men or two women. I actually want to point this out, by the way. You know, whenever the scripture makes reference to homosexuality, what's interesting is this. It's not, in the sentence structure, it's not a noun. You know, a noun identifying a person, place, or thing. Homosexuality is never stated in scripture in the form of a noun. It's actually in the form of a verb, which means that it's an action that a human being takes part in. It's not their identity. It's not an identity. It is a behavior. And from the beginning, God intended a monogamous heterosexual life as recounted in the creation account. One man, one woman in the institution of marriage. That's why we need the Bible. (laughs) That's why we need the word of God to be declared to us so that we would know God's moral code. This is why the Bible declares to us That any sex outside of marriage is a sin called fornication. And it teaches us that when someone is married and has sex with someone outside of the marriage covenant, it is a sin called adultery. The word of God declares to us that the body was not made for sexual immorality. It was made for God. And there's one place 
that God has designed for sex to happen between a man and a woman and is within the covenant of marriage. One man, one woman. And Jesus reminded those who asked him, he said this, the two become one flesh. The original language, when it speaks of this, it speaks of the closest possible union that can exist between two people. Literally, the scripture expresses the idea that it's like that they're glued together, the man and the woman. In marriage, there's this like moral, physical, spiritual union so that the two persons virtually become one before God, which is cool. Because originally, you know, when you think about it, man, when Adam was created, he contained Eve inside of him. And then the Lord separated her from him and she was given a body and he had a body and they were created male and female, perfectly complementary. And when woman, uh, woman came from man and then in the sexual union, they come back together and there is unity. The two become one once again. And there is oneness and it's expressed in their procreation. In procreation, when a man and a woman come together, a child is literally, a child is literally the expression of oneness between a man and a woman. It's fruitfulness. That's why we love our children. Aren't they beautiful? Our children are so beautiful because they are an expression of a love relationship. They're a gift from God. That's why it's wickedness and evil to take the life of a child. That's why I'd point out this this third point of a dominion mandate, I would say this dominion was exercised by procreation. And God ordained this to take place in an exclusive marriage relationship. Which means that we're, we are right to call marriage, to call human sexuality. They are a creation ordinance, meaning this. Marriage and sexuality are actually God's legislation. It's his law. There's no parliament in heaven. I'll just point that out. There's no parliament in heaven. The mandate and directive for relationship between a man and a woman and their sexual identity comes from the creator, from God. He made them male and female. He made you male or female, and he made it obvious by fitting you with a body. And he doesn't make mistakes. Let me just remind you of that. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. And so when the state, the government, takes this upon themselves to say that God's creative order of male or female is not right, it is nothing short of blasphemy. It's blasphemy before God. This is man, government, overstepping their authority with regards to marriage laws with regards to what they say about conversion therapy laws, Bill C-4 is blasphemy. And by the very nature of biology, which reflects God's blessing, it takes a man and a woman, a male and a female, to be fruitful. So to suggest that one can change their gender or that a man can be pregnant is debased. It's a perversion. It's a perversion of God's design. And so we as followers of Christ are in this conflict with the wisdom culture of this world and the word of God. And as your pastor and as a church, we're not standing up for some political ideology. 
We're standing up for biblical doctrine in the Word of God. And God ordained, God's ordained design of man or woman in a marriage is a biblical order that was set in place, amazingly, before sin ever entered the world. It's perfect. It's the picture of perfection. But sin messed everything up, didn't it? It's messed up my life. I know it's messed up yours too. Not, there's not one of us in this room that can say we got this right. Is there anyone here? Is there anyone here who would stand before God and say, I got this right? I got this perfect. We don't. As we declare these things this morning, I don't do so in arrogance or pride, but in humility before God. Because if he doesn't save me, I'm a mess. All of us. This is his design, and we messed it up. In Jesus, his view of marriage is clearly stated, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And marriage is foundational to our understanding of Christ and his church. Marriage is God's design for bringing children into the world so that they would be raised safely and raised in the instruction of the Lord. Marriage is the structure upon which nations are built. If you don't have marriage, families fall apart, nations fall apart, children struggle with forming their identity, the church falls apart. Marriage is God's design from the beginning. He made us male and female, and his word tells us it's perfectly clear. The most valuable thing in this world is to be in relationship with the Lord, to be walking with Jesus. And I know there's a great deal of pressure in the church to acquiesce on these matters. I just want to say this this morning. Don't risk it. Don't risk it. Don't risk throwing it away. Don't risk your salvation. Don't throw your life away. The word of God tells to us, be reconciled to Christ and come into conformity to him. So I want to leave you this morning with four biblical truths. They're simple. They're obvious. I've stated them already. The first is this. Number one, God made us male and female. There are no other genders. There are no other identities. You're a man or a woman made in the image of God. Secondly, marriage is a covenant before God and between a man and a woman. In the church of Jesus Christ, we take this covenant seriously. We seek to honor God. You know, maybe in your life or in your marriage, there's been lots of mess ups, lots of brokenness, lots of hurt. You know, this morning, I would just remind you of this. Don't look backwards. Look forward. Be reconciled to God and to one another. Thirdly, the only place that God has ordained for sexual union of a man or woman is within the covenant of marriage. Homosexual behavior, fornication, adultery. Jesus warned those who heard him, even the lusts of a man's own heart are sins before God and they need to be dealt with. And so I would encourage you, if there are areas in your life that are out of order, if you're addicted to porn, 
If you're being unfaithful in marriage, if you're having sex outside of marriage, bring it into order. Ask Jesus to begin to correct that behavior in your life and come to him in repentance. And fourthly, this is the motivator of my whole message. Creatures don't apologize for what the creator has said. I'm just a creature made in the image of God, and I'm telling you what our creator has said. We don't apologize for it. Not attacking people, but we can declare these things to all who would hear. If you're denying these biblical truths by word or by action or by lifestyle, I can lovingly tell you, you're caught in a lie. You're living a lie, and Christ has come to set you free. And so I want to read two scripture verses, two scripture passages this morning as we close. The first one's from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 11. I'm going to direct this one. In, my heart, in, your, in your heart, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to give one passage of Scripture to the followers of Christ and one passage of Scripture to those who are not yet followers of Christ. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 11. This is for those who are disciples of the Lord Jesus. It says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Church, we need to be reminded, you're a holy people a people who have been called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to make known his glorious light. You're a sojourner, an exile. You're passing through. We're part of the kingdom. The kingdom is here, but the kingdom is not yet at the same time. And I urge you, as Peter did, abstain from the passions of the flesh. When a man sins, the scripture tells us in Corinthians In a sexual area, he sins against his own body. These things, when believers participate in sexual sins, they are waging war against their own soul. That's what Peter said. So bring these things to the Lord in repentance and ask him to forgive you and to purify you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The second passage of Scripture I want to read is from Acts chapter 17. This is for any who do not know Jesus. If you're watching with us online, you don't know Jesus. Please listen to this passage. It says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to by raising him from the dead. That man that God raised from the dead, that man to whom the Father has committed all judgment, the man before whom we will all stand on that day of judgment is the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, who gave his life for the sins of the world to redeem us from its power and its penalty. And this morning, we come before him to say, Jesus, if you don't save me, I'm done. I'm done. That reality is true for those who walk with Jesus and those who don't. 
You have to know that. If you're watching with us this morning, you're here this morning, and you think as a believer I'm standing in judgment before you, I have to tell you I'm not. I'm done without Jesus. And we're all in that same position. And so I urge you, God does not look at these times as times of ignorance. He commands, repent and be reconciled to Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? I invite the worship team to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you don't leave things blurry. You don't leave us in confusion. God, you've clearly communicated from heaven. You sent your word. You sent your son. You call all men before you to repent uh, from their sin and to turn in faith to Christ Jesus. And this morning, Jesus, we turn towards you. Lord, before you, every one of us can acknowledge that there are areas of our life that are out of order. You're the God who brings order. And so, Jesus, we repent of our sin before you. We ask that you would forgive us. We ask, Jesus, that your kingship would take deeper and deeper root into our hearts and lives, that you would expose every area of darkness, Lord. We pray, God, that you would not allow us to walk in sexual sin before you, Lord, that we would repent of it. We pray, God, that we would not ignorantly ignore your word that is so obvious that you have made man in your image, male and female. And so, Lord, we acknowledge you and your kingdom and your design that's perfect. It's perfect, Lord. Conform us to your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.